Hey, welcome back to another Bald Move TV. Uh, I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we got a special guest sh- uh, joining us. It's Shane, the Bowman Bowman. Uh, Shane, we're talking about the Nick tonight, but before we get to that, season two, we got to do a season two wrap up, maybe a series wrap up, who knows? Um, I want to give you a little time to talk about what, because it's been since the end of the last season of Banshee, since I think we've heard from you on a Bald Move podcast. Right. So yep. I, I, I think you're doing different things now. And got some exciting things to talk about. Why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself and what you're doing? Sure. Sure. I, I still do Heisenberg Chronicles, so let's just get that out of the way. Mostly Better Call Saul, but I still do some Breaking Bad uh, uh, nods here and there on the Heisenberg Chronicles. But mostly it's a lot of Better Call Saul coverage, so that's still out there at Heisenberg Chronicles. Ramping up on the Better Call Saul stuff. That's right. That's right. We're finally starting to see teasers and sure pictures and uh, I, I presume he, sometime here soon there's going to be a uh, a dump to Netflix of season one so I'm looking forward to that so there's uh, there's that I'm still on the Heisenberg Chronicles and I've been doing for about four five months now I've been doing a weekly TV and movie podcast called Film Schlubs uh, with uh, Brian Davids every Monday he and a guest review films and trailers and movie news they do a lot of in-depth coverage on Mondays they do movies and every Thursday, he and I take a comprehensive look at what's on TV. We do non-spoiler episodic reviews. We do roundup of all the TV news from that week, what's coming up in the week ahead. And then we do deep dive spoiler reviews on shows like The Walking Dead and Fargo and Better Call Saul. You know, the big, you know, prestige dramas, the Americans, that sort of thing. And then we also do interviews with actors and creators, uh, um, various TV shows that we love. Uh, we had Rachel Keller on from Fargo. She played Simone Gerhardt. She was fantastic mm. interview. And I think she's going to be on Noah Hawley's new FX show. What is that called? Legends, maybe? Uh, anyways. I liked her a lot on Fargo. Yeah, she was fantastic on Fargo. And then we did, we did an interview with Evie on The Leftovers. Uh, that's Jasmine and Jasmine right Savoy Brown. Yeah, she was great. And uh, we did a couple interviews. Brian did a couple interviews with Patrick Somerville, uh, who was one of the writers on staff for season two of The Leftovers. So, you know, we're doing some interviews with some folks. We do uh, really just about anything. We've done some uh, we've done some season and review kind of uh, podcast. We did Narcos. Uh, that was fantastic. And we also did some instant tape podcasts. I don't know whether we're going to continue to do instant tape podcasts going forward, but our goal really each week is to take a comprehensive look at what's worth watching on TV for that week. So this week I'll probably talk about uh, London Spy, which is coming up on BBC America. We talked about Billions last week on Showtime. So we're really just trying to take a comprehensive look, maybe turn some people on to some shows that they don't know about or they're thinking about investing their time in. So what's what was that site again? Heisenberg Chronicles. Um, I'll, I'll put that on the show notes for this episode, sure. too. And then th- this other show as well. You said it was Film... Film Schlubs. Film Schlubs. Yeah, that's S-C-H-L-U-B-S. All right. And yep. I'll, I'll put a link to your guys' website or, or iTunes uh, on the show notes if you're looking for that. Cool. So let's talk about the Nick. Um, we talked about this. We did a season in review last year, and I remember that for the first half of the season, I was kind of wary that you know that that, that some of the serious topics that were being brought up were not were were, were in a more exploitative fashion and were not mm. really edifying. And I think that they turned the corner on that in in last year, but this year I was really impressed with. Um, 
just a lot of uh, how they were able to touch on a lot of different topics that we still, you know, kind of struggle with modern day, you know, reproductive health, um, you know, women's rights, uh, minority rights, uh, equality of, of sexes and races and, and, and all those things in a very, very thoughtful way. Yeah. And, but then also really kind of up, uh, you know, upset the apple cart in the last few episodes for some plot lines that, you know, it's like just when I thought I was feeling a certain way about a character, you know, this big revelation that completely changed things. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought the surgery stuff was as good as it was last year. Um, I thank you for your coverage, the, the, our, our conversation last year, because I really paid attention to some of the things you were talking about, like the music and the lighting. Mm-hmm. Um and the way Soderbergh was compositing his shots and it, it brought a lot of my enjoyment to see kind of like, you know, how unique it is. I mean, this show looks and sounds kind of, it stands apart from the rest of the TV landscape. What yeah. did you think of season two overall? And then we can talk uh, some specifics. Sure. On my, on my uh, top 10 for this year, I had it at number three behind Mr. Robot and the Leftovers. All right. Well, we, so, we I think we shared the one and two spot, but I, I the Leftovers came in at number, or I'm sorry, the Nick came in at number nine, but I could only push so hard because Jim hasn't seen it. So That's right. That's yeah. right. Your, your top 10 was a co-top 10. It was right? a co-top 10. Yep. Right, right, right. I love this season. Um, I was not a particularly huge fan of Clive Owen in the first season. I mean, I... I really thought they did that story well, and some parts of it were fantastic. But it's I mean, it's well worn territory, you know. Yeah, professional and junkie. Was, the The thing I liked most about it was their willingness to follow every story, but his. Right. Uh-huh. I mean, his story is still there throughout this season, but it's in terms of their investment in in the story. Four or five other stories have just as much focus and time devoted to it, and. Like the Algernon storyline, Cornelia story, Harriet and Cleary story, Lucy's story, all of those got rich development. And that's what allowed them to talk about and investigate and illuminate all the issues that you opened up with, right? Right. Um, and so that's what I appreciated most about season two. I mean, the score continued to evolve. Uh, I don't know how closely you listen to season one versus season two soundtrack. But a lot of it uh, wasn't just a repeat. It was an evolution mm-hmm. of the sound, right? Dave Porter kind of did that on Breaking Bad quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated Cliff Martinez's score this year. Of course, Soderbergh's direction and cinematography were unbelievable. Uh, I thought some of the dialogue improved from this show, from uh, season one. I thought it was I don't know. I was I didn't particularly care for a lot of the dialogue in season one, and in season two, I thought that was a a nice step up. So you said that you know getting away from Clive Owen, like they're letting these other stories breathe. I feel like that they came to the same realization that I was kind of coming to that the story with Thackeray was arguably the least interesting thing happening at the Nick. And yeah. this stuff with uh, the the nun and the, the Harriet and Cleary, mm-hmm. uh, the stuff that was going on with Lucy, the stuff that was going uh, even Bar- Barrow, um, like he's a guy who this little cockroach of a character that you're always hoping that he's going to get squashed, and he kind of does, and he manages to wriggle out and 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 mm-hmm. cockroach another day. But even he was kind of fascinating, and. I also thought it was really interesting how they took – I forget the good-looking blonde uh, former assistant chief surgeon who was the – Gallinger. Main, Gallinger. 
uh-huh. the stuff they did with him where they alternated making him sympathetic and villainous. Yeah. I thought was really interesting too, because it's like you, you know, you try to talk eugenics today after the, you know, after, essentially after the rise of the national socialism in Germany and you just get laughed out of the room, but people forget that this was a respected burgeoning right. branch of science that was making a lot of sense to very powerful people and right. a matter of, 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 of some debate and study and just terrible, terrible things were done in its name by well-meaning, well-intentioned people. And, but then at the end, it's like, I, I never could decide whether I thought Gallagher was a irredeemably bad guy, a complete asshole, uh, misunderstood if he was, you know, grew up in a different household or if with a different family or a different, mm-hmm. you know, if it wasn't this jealousy with Algernon. And there, there's this tension that I thought was the theme of the season. And there was this um, thing where uh, Algie uh, was having a confrontation with uh, the son that was the heir to the, the Nick Empire. I, I'm, I'm right. terrible at these people's names. But he says... This is the future. And he's talking about himself being the the chief resident of the Nick. He goes, you think it's here too soon. I think it's here too late. Right. And I thought that was a great perspective on on the entire series because that's, you know, any kind of social change for the people advocating for it. It's like what takes you for for so uh, what's taking you so long. And for the people mm-hmm. that are scared or resistant of it. Oh, my God, you're moving too fast. And that tension, it, it I, I guess it kind of helps me regain some sanity to go back 100 years and see. Nothing really has changed. Nothing is really right. new. Right. That this is stuff. Th- these are struggles that go back centuries that we're still fighting today. And, and look how much progress we made. Look how much far far we have to go. Yeah. Well, you know, I think these kinds of period pieces tend to romanticize, uh, you know, or period shows in general, let's just say, tend to romanticize eras. Right. Sure. And there's nothing romantic about this show. There's no it's everything is pulled back and it's raw. It's right there. And that's what I think is so absolutely impressive about it is I every time I watch it, I'm just I I, I turn to my wife and I go, thank God we didn't live in that era. Sure. Now, are really things that different from then to now? Probably not. And I think they do a real good job accentuating the points in in uh, various uh in various issues, whether it's eugenics or, uh, like you said, women's rights or minority rights, some things obviously have changed. But the sticking points, the sort of refined details of it really aren't that different. I mean, I loved Lucy's Lucy's storyline really surprised me this season, this sort of like I'm going to kick and claw my way to prominence, right? You say that I can just be a nurse and I'm I'm a good sort of girlfriend or a person to sort of – what did she always say? Douse it. Sure. <laughs> Douse it and go at it. You know, Lucy really wanted more, and she was willing to go to any length to get it, right? She was willing to let her toes sucked by that. <laughs> the lotus, yeah. Yeah, the, she was willing to, to, do the, to do the lotus, but to do it in service of getting something else she wanted. And, uh, but... I thought her what character about- was was this brilliant fusion of like Joan's arc for Mad Men and Pe- and and uh, Peggy's. Peggy's. That's a good point. Like it's all the ambition and professional pride and wanting to move that ahead, but also the awareness that look, I'm a sexual being and that has power too. 
and then it's set so much so much so so before it seems even more kind of avant-garde what she's doing with her just open manipulation of robert and what a right you know, and that's i guess that's the one thing i'm sad about with potentially this plot line ending is that was just getting interesting like yeah that that there was a whole bunch of stories that where you're like i really don't want these threads to end or to close in any way shape or form i was hoping that Thackeray would die, but then they would get a new chief surgery, and they, they would just keep going with the rest of the storyline. Yeah, absolutely, this story could continue without Thackeray. Now, right, it seems like Algy also, unfortunately, his surgical career was going to be over too because of yeah. his his eye injury, which is, you know, that's another interesting thing—the tension between his father and him. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he terrified his father because he's like, you know, we have come a long way, and it wasn't through getting in fights with white men and black men and getting her brains beat out you know like look look at what you've done compared to me whereas that was just kind of fuel for algae's fire that got him into the situations that you know it's like i'm not going to blame the guy for wanting to punch people's lights out but the reality is those the the choices he made led to the fact that he's losing his vision and can't perform surgery anymore which is you know and and infuriatingly Gallinger is the one who kind of put the exclamation point at the end of that because it was kind of a touch and go thing. And then, you know, he sucker punched him like a, like the, the, the asshole he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was that. But I thought that you could absolutely lose uh, Thackeray, maybe Algernon, or maybe have him take a different role mm-hmm. and, and, and proceed forward the rest of the characters. But so you might know more about this than I, and maybe we should talk about this kind of broad stroke before we move into the individual plot lines. But at the end of the series, I thought it was an open question of whether Thackeray is going to die or not. Um, it certainly seemed like he was dead, but I thought with the the way they kind of ambiguously dealt with not showing his body and 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 all that, that that funeral maybe could have been something that that we could recontextualize next season, and the fact that. Uh, um, Birdie went running for the uh, adrenaline, uh, mm-hmm. which seems, I guess, like a red herring now that if he's truly dead. But you never had any doubt that he was dead and gone and that was it, yeah? Yeah, no, I, I read it completely, especially the shot after uh, when they cut back to the theater and the theater's empty and it's completely scrubbed white. I mean, I, I read it all as he's dead. And the way they were sewing up other storylines in the series, it kind of reinforced that for me. And then you you get on and, you know, you get on the Internet and two seconds later, you know, for a fact he's dead. One of the things I was worried about after the episode was over was I wish they had made it a little bit more emphatic so that people didn't have a lingering hope. Because not everybody who watches the show is going to go online and you know, read interviews no, you're with right. Clive Owen. Why do you think other... they did do that? Because I thought, like, yeah, I mean, I don't think it was... Um, I think it was definitely suggestive of him dying, but if they wanted to make him dead, there was ways to do it. And also, I thought it was puzzling, like, earlier it seems like Thackeray and Algernon uh, conveniently forgot about the fact that they have this fever chamber that they could treat the, uh, a woman with and decide to infect with malaria. And I thought that this with, with um, Birdie was going to be kind of like a callback to, like... Mm-hmm. Birdie is going to remember, oh, I'm studying adrenaline. Oh, this can start a heart that has stopped because of whatever's happening. I'm running off and getting it. Cutting away from that, I felt like is intentionally injecting an ambiguity when on the talent and creative side, there was no ambiguity as far as what they were doing. Well, 
It depends on how you read the ambiguity. I mean, like you read the ambiguity. I read it with no ambiguity. I could see how people would interpret it that way, but I thought it was pretty crystal clear. What I, I did like the fact that they have Birdie go get the adrenaline and the adrenaline doesn't work, right? But why I not mean, show it, that? But if it did work, they would have showed it. Yeah. What did right? you think it's, about what I said about the fever chamber? Because I thought that that was... You know, in the same episode, they introduced it. There was a perfect chance to demonstrate it, and both the person who stumped for the technology and the person who was, I guess, skeptical, neither one of them thought, hey, maybe let's try this thing. I didn't, like, there was a couple of puzzling decisions, and I thought that the, I don't know, the adrenaline thing was a piece of that. I don't understand why introducing that concept and devoting its screen time and having kind of Chekhov's adrenaline shot when mm-hmm. the gun fizzles and never, you know, it, it's it's never fired. It's a shot that's never fired. Well, I th- I thought that was more of an analogy about the the current the, about the state of medicine that they're in, right? I mean, we we can connect those dots because we know the possibilities or the potential, mm-hmm. but they're still in an era where they're still trying to figure out what dots need to be connected, mm-hmm. right? And so if the answer is sitting right there in the room that you're in or you've been investigating those answers, it kind of sets up for a tragic reflection, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I, I could have done this or, that, you know, I continue my studies or research into something and realize three or four weeks later this could have been the solution. That makes it more tragic that they even didn't remember or see that connection. But when they do make the connection – uh, like, you know, Birdie finally going to get the adrenaline for Thackeray and it doesn't work. It's it isn't medicine isn't magic or always this sort of mystical, you know, wave your hand and, you know, the solution. But employing the solution isn't that easy. Yeah. I, I, after season one, I went and read uh, I talked about it uh, the last uh, after season one is I, I read Genius on the Edge. That was the book about Halstead, which Thackeray is semi-based upon. Mm-hmm. I also read a book called uh, Anatomy of Addiction, Sigmund Freud, William Halstead, and the Miracle Drug Cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I read a couple other books about surgery in that era because this was the birth of of, surg- of surgery as we know it. Sure. You know, I mean, they show it on the show as basically – Prior to this, you walk down to a barber shop and somebody cut your leg off. That's mm-hmm. how you fixed a broken leg, mm-hmm. right? Or you essentially stayed in a corner, tough through it while people gave you laudanum, mm-hmm. and hopefully it grew back together right, right, right? Whatever it is was your problem. I mean, survival rates on most surgeries were less than a percent. Yeah. And, I mean, that's where, like, you know, I don't know how old your grandparents are, if they're still alive, but, you know— I remember my grandmother when I was a kid, you know, talk about going to the doctor was like terrifying for sure. her, right? You know, and, you know, it, in today's era, that seems ridiculous or like going to the dentist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, everybody's got relatives who still won't go to a dentist mm-hmm. because they're terrified of what might happen there. Sure. And this is where all that shit was born out with these sort of, you know, the 1900s through 1940s where it really was just trial and error and there was mm-hmm. no way of knowing if you were going to survive or die and that's i don't I, I don't like it so much when they have Chekhov's you know adrenaline bottle and then they use it and it works hmm. cuz most of the time it didn't and yeah. i think that's what i liked about this season was there was a lot of times where it just didn't work 
there was a lot of failure. And I, that's what that era was. And I do like, I thought it was really cool because, like, you go into the hospital now, they got all these procedures and all these checklists and, you know, don't eat 24 hours before you go under anesthesia and don't do this and don't drink water after midnight. And, and you start realizing watching a show that every single rule and restriction is put in there because someone has died. And, like, you know, simple as, like, uh, a person took a few drops of laudanum to calm themselves before surgery. The doctors mm-hmm. didn't know about it. She goes under and she dies. Right. And, you know, the fact that there's this Jewish doctor who's like, look, we want to study advances in modern science, but we have to be very small in the steps we take. And we have to be cautious. We have to be circumspect. Versus right. Thackeray, who's just jabbing electrodes in people's brains and cutting it out. And, like, well, let's see what happens. And it's like... It's like the wild, wild west. You got these two competing philosophies. Yeah. Like and, and it's asking us, like, this is the hero of the show, this this Thackeray, and he's doing these things. Yet there's these villains who are pulling people's teeth and resectioning their bowels because they think that that's you know, that this is some kind of infectious brain. You know, this is stuff that was it's the same character that was touched on um in in uh, the last season of Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, right, um, Dr. Cotton. Yeah. Uh-huh. I thought it's interesting to see those two competing approaches where it's like, okay, we're doing a lot of good stuff here, but we need to get scientific rigor and the characters that are heroic complaining about like, oh, how slow it is and why can't we just do this, that and the other. And mm-hmm. and like, is that, you know, how many more years is that going to still be heroic? And, and, and when are we going to start thinking, oh, this guy just shoved electrodes in this guy's brain and cut a piece out just to see that's barbaric. Like, right. <laughs> I thought that's really cool too. To sh- in in one stroke, present a person as heroic and 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 um you know this almost a miraculous healer, but also with the wisdom that we have with another century of medicine behind us to know mm-hmm. that he's also kind of a madman. Well, and two, I think the show makes it fairly apparent, but I don't think they underscore it maybe in the right ways. Is uh, Thackeray was an addict, mm-hmm. and he was driven by selfish goals. Sure, right? I mean, he he talks. Uh, remember in the first season where he's trying to figure out blood types? Uh huh. He's it, he's not trying to figure it out for the betterment of society. He's trying to figure it out for the betterment and grandeur of himself. Mm-hmm. That is an addict to its core. Yeah. Right. And so, y- you see, when he's trying to solve addiction. He's not trying to solve it for any other reason than for himself. Sure. And and I liked how the ghost of that little girl uh-huh. was haunting him throughout the whole season. Yeah, they did a very nice job with that. In fact, that whole uh, boat rehab, sailboat uh-huh. rehab sequence was uh, masterfully done. I I love how different cinemagraphic, cinema visually. Yes. <laughs> I love how different the visual is for those sequences. Uh-huh. As you know, kind of beatific and uh, and always with these people from his past appearing in this uh, fever haze, you know, and his uh, various states that he's in where this boat comes back throughout the latter part of the season. The cool thing is that whole boat rehab is uh, is is taken right out of Halstead's life. No kidding. I mean, yeah, I mean, one of his. A fellow doctors, I think it was Mays, who there's a doctor named Mays in this season, but it's not based on the real Mays. But anyways, one of one of his doctor friends says, uh, after, you know, failed attempts at various rehab techniques, 
says, okay, uh, I'm going to put you on this boat to the Caribbean. And you and I, I'm going to give you essentially a tapering dose. I'm going to wean you off of this drug. And by the time we get back, however many months later, you're going to be off the medication. Mm-hmm. And uh, however, in the middle of the night, somewhere, uh, you know, however many weeks into the trip, Thackeray breaks into the cache of drugs that Mays was uh, going to taper him off with. Yeah, it was gonna, and essentially cashes it out himself <laughs> and uh, goes on a massive binge, takes all the drugs, and then he's forced to for the trip back because when they got to the island, there wasn't this magic cache of cocaine or morphine sure. or anything. And so he ended up having to go through a very severe withdrawal, you know, all the way back. And, you know, he could get off the drugs, but he never stayed off of them, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, the real Halstead ended up living, you know, most of his 80 years as a functional addict. He figured out how to uh, essentially take maintenance doses right. of morphine and cocaine, but lived a very fruitful career and uh, as a researcher, as a scientist, and as a, as a surgeon. And, I, you know, I was reading that the guy, the real guy, you know, um, he pioneered uh, breast cancer surgery that was still being used. His techniques and methods were still being used into the 70s. You know, I mean, it's which seems impossible, but apparently, you know, he was that thorough and his ideas were that groundbreaking. And in that sense, Thackeray, when he's doing those kinds of things, is heroic, but otherwise, he's a sleaze. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of similar, there's a lot of Mad Men uh, comparisons, just like it was kind of, you know, when you see Don Draper take his family out for a picnic in a park, and then when it's done, Betty just takes, (laughs) she just takes the the picnic blanket and tosses the trash just just off of the blanket, and Don (laughs) wads up his beer can and throws into a creek, and you're like, holy shit, people did that. Like, when you see people fucking around with a bare x-ray bulb. And and then later on in a poker game, it's like, you got some spots in your hands. Yeah, I got to have my doctor look at it. And they're talking, have yeah. you seen those new x-ray machines? Oh, yeah, I've had hundreds of them. It's yeah. like, damn, people had no idea what the forces that they were playing with. And they weigh – another thing I thought was, was kind of shocking to get back to Algie's storyline is, you know, this was a very charged racially – uh, you know, for him in this particular time. But he goes to this high society party where they have two white – vaudeville actors in blackface and of all the things that he was railing against it's like him and his wife had no i was expecting can you fucking believe this bullshit when they get back to their 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 cab that was not a problem that was not even on their rate their their radar of being like offensive or uh, something that they they were worried about and it's like just little touches like that where Mm -hmm you see something like that and you kind of gasp and like, Oh my God, what the hell is going on? And and you put it in context of what it was like to live in those days. I just thought those, just like I like those touches about Mad Men every once in a while when you'd have this casual littering or racism or sexism and it would just kind of mm-hmm. take your breath away. But the characters were just like, eh, whatever. Right. Uh, there's a lot of that same, it's not exactly a pleasurable sensation, but that kind of cognitive dissonance is, I, it's, it's like I said, I'm not, it's not enjoyable. It's just very interesting to me. Well, yeah. And that, I mean, that's why, you know, when you have things, when you have a show that isn't romanticizing the era, it's simply saying that's this what is it the is. Way it, 
right. It says that this isn't the way we'd like to remember it. This yep. is the way it was, yep. right? And so in a lot of ways, that's what – whether you react to it in a holy shit way or whether you react to it in a like you know edification way. Like I didn't know it was quite like that. Yeah. You know, I, that's – it's like kind of having a piece of the History Channel, you know, infusing – your drama in a very meaningful way. I mean, Jack Amiel, one of the writers and showrunners of the show, did a fantastic job of uh, blogging, every, live blogging every episode and would blog all these facts that um, were the source of their inspiration uh, for, uh, you know, various surgeries like yeah. Thackeray's self-surgery at the end of the oh my season. God. That they've got pictures of guys doing that in that time period. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's incredible. You know, it, it seems like that well, was one of the most tough adventure. to watch that. There was something so cold blooded in the way that he went about the spectacle of operating on himself It is one of the mm-hmm. most disturbing things I've watched this season of television. It was it was pretty damn disturbing. And most of the surgery was unbelievably shocking to me but but this it's like it just it's like it started off pretty bad like the idea that he's going to open himself up and do all this and then it just kept on getting worse why do you think i mean i guess one thing i wondered i have a problem with it but it's like no one stepped in to say okay you've had your point here comes the ether mask good night dr thackeray why do you think that they let him kill himself because I, I felt sure. like that there it was there there was a moment where he could have still been saved, but Birdie and I don't know whether they were in shock or they just the respect for him or whether there was a little bit of like well you've we're giving you enough rope to hang I just I didn't quite understand why it was happening. I I took a little bit of it to be metaphorical. It's like that we know this guy is going to kill himself, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it doesn't matter whether we step in to save him now or. 10 minutes from now or that we don't, he will, he will take himself out. Hmm. That's also the essence of an addict. Yeah. Right. It's not anybody else's undoing. It's their own undoing. And, uh, it was, I thought it was fascinating on the addiction front to see him kind of work through some of the various solutions that were explored for addiction Hmm. and, you know, gets very close to, you know, I, I mean, Granted, I think things like AA were still like 30 or 40 years down the road from where he is. But the early ideas of AA, you know, and talking therapeutically, you know, it's yeah. a mental disease yeah. are are shown here. And it's an interesting uh, way to realize and to show, you know, how do we how we modernly view um, addiction through the eyes of people in that era. Yeah. Right. Because most people, it wasn't seen as an, a disease, and still, to a lot of a lot of uh, modern minds, it's not a disease. Sure. It's it's a failing. It's a of, personal you weakness. Know, yeah, it's your weakness. It's your character. But you know, nowadays addiction is no different than any other mental ailment. It's something that uh, that's understood as a mental ailment, and you know, just like a lot of things, it, it's. Uh, can be cured through not necessarily cured, but managed is maybe mm-hmm. a better way to say it uh, through uh, therapy and various um, 
talking therapy. I like how they called it talking therapy mm-hmm. or the talking cure. Yeah. It can be managed through that method. And it's not a pill. It's not some, you know, it's not lobotomy. Sure. <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's quite simple. And uh, I didn't particularly care for Algernon kind of taking over Thackeray's practice, you know, and his, uh, you know, that secession of the storyline that felt a little weak, even though I liked the actual execution of it. Hmm. Why uh, did you I, think that? Because I actually thought it was pretty touching. I, it just didn't um, – I don't think Algernon really gave a shit about Thackeray really? enough to want to take it over. No, I, I don't. Um, I thought Algernon appreciated the fact that you know, his other benefactors were almost patronist, patronizing to him. Weren't almost. They were patronizing right. to him, kind of like right. pat him on the bed. like, there's our boys. Look at the work he's doing. Um, whereas Thackeray didn't like, he was skeptical of him and whatnot, but like all that mattered to him was results. And if he right. made his case and he was skillful, then he would progress and esteem in Thackeray's eyes. And I think he enjoyed that purely meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Like if everyone sure. was like Thackeray, we would, yeah, sure. You'd have some resistance at first, but we'd move a lot quicker because he just doesn't give a shit except for anything about re- results. And I thought that there was a bit of mutual respect. I mean, they, at the end of the day, they kind of showed a lot of trust, like Algernon confiding in him about his, his problems with his eye. Um, mm-hmm. Thackeray confiding in him about some of the things about his, his addiction and this, and the experimental surgeries he was trying to do with himself and, and Bertie's mother and, and, and all those things. So uh, to me, I guess, I guess I, that's the thing. If you didn't buy their relationship, I can see where that would fall kind of flat. Yeah, I mean, it, I didn't see it as a tremendous, you know, failing. I just didn't think that Algernon gave as much of a fuck about Thackeray, you know, to want to take over this. I thought it was sort of like, hey, I don't have my eyes. I can't do surgery. But I want to stay in medicine. I want to help people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to continue down this path. I'm just going to pick up some other potential, you know. I mean, because psychotherapy was at its advent you know in that time period right it was just kind of coming around as a discipline and evolving out of that and i i guess i can see that but it just didn't connect with me in the same way it connected with you what did you think about the conjoined twin plot line because um it did seem like it was the most one-dimensional black and white issue where Thackeray is just purely the good guy against a unquestionable evil and he did something that was unquestionably good um but i mean did do you think that was a weakness do you think that was a filler material i can't couldn't decide whether the pleasure of watching something just purely good happen Mm. outweighed the kind of trite nature of it well i think they had to give thackeray a success and they also had to give Thackeray a uh, a moment where he's coming out of his addiction and sort of returning to his former greatness in quotes, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it, it you know, at, on the surface it feels a little bit like filler, but without it, we don't have Thackeray kind of starting to come out of uh, uh, out of his addiction, re-entering the medical practice in a impactful and meaningful way. So essentially it's his, you know, inguinal hernia or his placenta previa from season uh-huh, one. This uh-huh. is his kind of moment to reascend 
and normalize back into his routine and prior to his last descent. Which that so, was triggered by the death of his lover. Um, I can't right. remember her name. The one, the woman was suffering from syphilis. You think that if she stays alive, that he, his story turns out very differently? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, she's the trigger that makes him go back out. And essentially, I mean, there's an entire episode where he's just, he's just stoned in that whorehouse, right? Sure. Right. He's just sitting there, kind of stoned. I think he opens his eyes once. That's when the twins are being carted away. Right at the end of that episode, uh, kind of going back out as separated. You know, the twins, I I didn't like that it was conjoined twins, right? I know this happened during that period. This is another one of the facts that James, J- Jack Amiel was putting out there as a source. You know, this really happened in this time period, blah, blah, blah. But the conjoined twins were kind of a lot like the advent of the motion picture that, you know, where you see the gal from The Walking Dead. Right, who's undressing in front of the motion camera? Yeah, um, Cornelia's brother. Oh yeah, um, Doodlebug. <laughs> yeah, I can't ever remember her name. Beth. But Beth. Right. So Beth is sitting there uh, undoing her corset for you know night, turn of the century porno, uh-huh. and uh, the electric cars uh, get you know, um, it's all these like little historical facts that. Yes, this happened during this time period. They kind of feel like thrown in accoutrement prop mm-hmm. as opposed to being meaningful, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they're just sort of like a gee whiz. I didn't know that you know electric cars came before gasoline and combustion. I cars. thought that was pretty cute too. Yeah, it was thought- a little cutesy and just didn't feel uh-huh. uh, net organic to the story. Um, they, I mean, they tried certainly in a lot of places, but it was not my favorite thing about this season they felt it just felt opaque and Mm -hmm. a little shoehorned in at times Um, see i thought it was that i thought that you know just like Mad Men has big arcs of like what the fuck there's also like i said the you know the casual littering and every once in a while it's like oh fuck rogers in blackface what the hell i thought that that (laughs) moment of like hey we had electric cars before we had gasoline cars was kind of like a, a wink to us a hundred years into the future like right. you know we're just now getting back to that um you know because of a, a variety of reasons but like everyone thinks this is like future jetsons technology but that was actually the the forerunner mm-hmm. um I, I don't know like, i enjoyed those little touches it, and, it reminded me like uh you know this show gets compared a lot to deadwood right in mm-hmm. the way that it's a period piece mm-hmm. it's a really richly developed universe mm-hmm. it has a broad cast of characters that you know of all different shapes sizes colors creeds etc and uh, has storylines this season i think more so than season one has storylines that sometimes intersect sometimes abruptly end sometimes they're just abandoned completely the way they do the way they used to do the same sort of thing in deadwood is what it reminded me of i mean like when uh when seth bullock's uh, son gets the bicycle or maybe who gets the bicycle somebody gets a bicycle and uh, you know the big wheel with the mm-hmm. teeny wheel behind it and they yeah. ride it through town they always had little elements of technology kind of splintered into deadwood and they were kind of cute and i guess they uh were useful to you know saying this is you know something that's of the time period but I don't know. It, it it felt a little bit more obvious to me in the beginning of the season, more so than it did at the end. Uh, but 
you know, it didn't, I didn't hate it. I just, it felt cutesy and not as natural as a lot of the other things on the show. Yeah. I honestly thought that, um, the seer, the, the show kind of took its time getting started because I, I watched the yeah. first like three episodes and then I remember feeling like I'm not in a hurry to get back to the show. And then when mm-hmm. I finally did over Christmas break, I binged like the last seven episodes in the space of a like 36 hour period because like once it got, you know, I, I felt like once they moved away from Thackeray and got more into what Algernon's doing, what Lucy was doing, what Creevy and Harriet especially was doing, it's mm-hmm. like very watchable. But maybe that was it. The, like some of that stuff was too much in the beginning where the show was kind of still trying to figure out a way to pivot from season one. Um, can we talk about Creevy and Harriet for a little bit? Cleary? Cleary, I'm sorry. Yeah, Cleary. yeah, yeah. Because Cleary and Harry. he was yeah, kind of my favorite character um, out of season one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he started forming this relationship with Harriet. And it's getting to, you know, you know, around episode seven, like me and Cecily are just eating this stuff up. And it's almost like so over-the-top heartwarming. It's like a plot out of Downton Abbey, right? Mm-hmm. And then with two episodes to go it gets really incredibly dark with that, conf- you know, and it all hinges in this confession scene, scene right. with, with, uh, uh, Cleary. Um, why did they see fit to knock us on our ass like that? Um, <laughs> why? Int- I mean, I guess like w- knowing if they did know with certainty that they were going to wrap things up this season, Mm-hmm. Why did they kind of leave us with that big cliffhanger? With I guess they it wasn't really a cliffhanger. I mean, you understand that uh, Cleary and Harriet are actually a really bad idea, and Harriet's putting her head in a noose unknowingly. She's going to be shacking up with a man who is far worse than she could have possibly imagined, and has engineered everything that made him look benevolent and loving was something that he engineered cynically. I, I don't know. I. I mean, my mind was blown and I was left stunned and not sure how to think about it. And I don't know mm-hmm. if I don't like it or if I thought it was brilliant or what. What was your feelings on their whole plot arc? Well, I think you've got a bit of a cynical take on their future. Right? Really? I mean, they could possibly end up being married and happily ever after. I, I don't know the likelihood uh, of it going down that direction because I think possibly could – Cleary looked at her as a, a a bit of a salvation in a way, and that maybe together that he 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 and Harriet kind of balance each other out in a lot of ways. And I saw it as I, I didn't see it so cynically as like this is the worst direction that Harriet could go and that really she shouldn't be with this guy. I mean it I'm not trying to discount what a horrible thing he did to put her where she is and to put her in that position. I mean, it is the most amazing long con scam. I think we've seen on TV or even in the movies in quite some time. It just, you know, when you begin your relationship with such a lie and manipulation and arguably abusive behavior that the other person's mm-hmm. not even aware of, I just, I guess it's hard for me to see, that relationship as like as long term like you know that implies a certain lack of respect for another person's agency and decision making and you know in 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 the turn of the century turn of the 20th century 
you already have this kind of situation where there's a huge imbalance between men and women in relationships, mm-hmm. especially in a relatively culturally conservative relationships. Mm-hmm. And you've got this guy who has hoodwinked this woman into this relationship. Like, you know, I don't know. Cause it, it, it was, it was amazing though, the way they did it, you know, I mean, you kind of feel like there's, I mean, I remember reading in the forums and in, in the Bob move forums where people were just like, I don't know about this Harriet Cleary thing. I hope they don't put them together and they ended up putting them together, but like you said, with this hammer kind of thrown on top of it, I'm not sure why they did it, but I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant, too. It was just one of those things where... <laughs> it's a little soul-crushing, it's, too. It's one of those things where I, it, it's, you know, I, when something that had you relatively happy just turns to ash in your mouth... <laughs> Um, oh, but it, that happened with just about everybody on this show. Yeah. Do you, so I guess the thing that one because that was, I felt like that story was done. The one thing that really sticks with me and bothers me is Lucy, because mm. on the one hand she had a nice little arc where you know she'd broken free and she's been this kind of libertine and she's her own woman and she's not she's doing the manipulation she's not being manipulated she had this brilliant and chilling sending her father off to hell. Because uh, he was a real j- piece of work. And I thought yeah. that was nice to wrap up. But then she also had this relationship with Robert, mm-hmm. who we find himself as a master manipulator and an almost arc villain. And yeah. I thought with him, the the, 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 the thing going on with, with Lucy and Robert and Cornelia... I felt like was not ready to be put on a shelf or I, I, I almost right. need, like I felt a little gypped that they put that plot out there and left those loose ends and now are intentionally never going to let me know or even give me an indication about what happens next. You see, I don't mind that it wasn't so cleanly resolved. I mean, I, while the thing is, at the end of this season, I still wanted desperately to spend more time with these characters, especially Algernon, especially mm-hmm. Cornelia. Mm-hmm. I want to see Cornelia persevere. I want to yes. see Cornelia be the last woman standing. To see some fruits of all this labor that she's gone under for these past two seasons. Well, I mean, she basically – this poor woman is in peril the entire season yeah. from the people she's closest to, right? I mean, she doesn't find it. She kind of slowly unravels in her kind of detective way that she did in season one with uh, Typhoid Mary. Mm-hmm. She is, it turns out that there's multiple Typhoid Marys all around her. And her family and, is not, is, is in no small part producing and, and covering this stuff up. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I mean, whether it's her father who certainly had his flaws but wasn't the one architecting the thing that she thought he was architecting but he he certainly was not um he certainly wasn't a, a pure minded soul right no. uh robert and then you've got the father-in-law and the husband that f- I, I mean think- i guess i should be thankful that that father-in-law situation didn't go oh thank a- god yeah cuz i was like really the whole time bracing myself for something truly terrible to happen well, they and, were telegraphing the hell out of that yeah, in season one and yeah. insinuated it quite a bit in season two. And it turned out that he was just all psychological warfare, not physical, mm-hmm. you know, with her. But, oh, my God, the I, I she made it through it all. Uh-huh. And I wanted to see her to continue to persevere. 
And instead of getting on a boat and heading for Australia, I think it is. I don't remember exactly yep, where her no, boat that's where it was. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, that that was disappointing. Um, I I mean, do you remember this the scene on the stairs with the conversation with her and he's got his hand around, with uh, Robert? Oh, and, and then she I was like, is she going to throw her down the staircase? Yeah. And then that's what I'm saying, like the intersection of that. And then Lucy comes up into the promise mm -hmm. that, you know, she thinks she's got him eating out of tan and she's going to go to the Hamptons and she's going to have this posh. But she's getting in bed literally with a murder or like, uh, you know, a a kinslayer. If we if if we do a little Game of Thrones uh, preview, uh, that was I mean, I felt like that that plot is in the middle is in it was in literally in motion. And it's like kind of like, uh, you know. The end of Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Luke got his hand cut off, and he's in the med bay, and Lando's going off, and then I never get to see Return of the Jedi. <laughs> that is leaving me a little unsatisfied. And if they come, like, so let's talk about what have you heard as far as the future of the Nick? Because... Well, wait a minute before we get off the okay. Lucy thing. I want to talk about one thing about Lucy, which is it's interesting. Lucy and Algeron and a lot of these characters are fascinating to me because they. In a normally in an era where they shouldn't have agency as characters, they do have agency, mm-hmm. right? Like Lucy uh, starts reading medical textbooks and she's going to become a doctor. And this is one path that she's going to take out of her fixed role as a woman in this society, right? The pretty girl nurse and, you know, landing a doctor, right? She doesn't want to go down that path. She wants to become something more. Right. right, and I'm not entirely sure what inspired or drives her in that. Maybe it's her time with Thackeray, maybe not. But she is taking it into her own hands, and I love that path that they put her on. And then somehow she gets off of that path and decides, well, I'm just going to marry Rich, right? That's the path I'm going to take. And so she does have agency. She does – she could shine Robert off. She could not be seduced by the wealth. And continue on her path to become a female doctor, which is, you know, unheard of at those times. Mm-hmm. Just like, Al, you know, she has the agency and she's her own undoing. Thackeray, same way. Algernon, the same way. Yeah. I mean, nobody made Algernon go down to the bar and get into those fights with those huge men. Yeah. Right? Those were That was him taking out uh, in a very, you know... Um, painfully self-destructive way he's his own undoing Mm -hmm. he's going out there and letting somebody beat the living snot out of him yeah and so you know i mean people there's that age-old adage of like pick your battles Mm -hmm. and a lot of these people don't know how to pick their battles and become pick every battle and become their own undoing yeah it's amazing i mean gallinger's the same way so you're saying, I mean, I guess you're helping me to appreciate that maybe Lucy's story was finished. And that was kind of like, yeah, you know, her rejection of that path and embracing this, you know, you know, the more the Joan side of the force um, yeah. was kind of the end of her story. Well, and you can regardless imagine... of how that turns out individually, that that's a path right. that is 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 a deviation from, you know, like, like you said, she's using her agency in a way that is ultimately going to betray her power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, there was a, there was a, I forget what the tweet was, but it was basically something along the lines of, you know, how did the, the Nick will always 
you know, crush you in relationship to your hopes for a particular character. Yeah. I mean, it really is a a difficult show to watch because you invest in the in in these characters and hope that they can they can persevere and they do, but man is it god awful the shit that they're put through in route to persevering. I mean, I just don't know how people did it. You know, I I thought quite a bit about my grandmother who who really, you know, her her years were much later than this, but mm-hmm. they couldn't have been all that much different, you know. I mean, she worked in factories and, you know, made airplanes and bombers and just the shit that – but grew up on a farm like right. kind of like Lucy did and mm-hmm. just the shit that she would have to – had to endure through her lifetime. And yet she's still 94, crispy as ever, and somehow has an amazing – positive attitude about life we don't get to see that from these characters you know all the time i mean most of the time they're just somehow making making it through and it was so hard to watch some of these episodes yeah i did something when i got into podcasting like it was like early on i got to kind of Mm -hmm. urge recorded i sat there because my grandfather is turning 90 this year Mm-hmm. And this is about four years ago. I took my phone over and I just had like a three and a half hour conversation with him about mm-hmm. what his, you know, what his life like was growing up and what his father was like. And like, you know, I got all these stories I'd never heard before. And it is amazing. Like, I mean, I guess it's never going to stop. Like the way I was raised and where I grew up is so different from my son. And I already find myself, mm-hmm. you know, with the whole like I don't, I can't tell that I walked Walk twelve miles of school uphill both ways. It's my is like you know I yeah I once I once was stuck in a road trip down to Florida and I didn't have a Game Boy and I didn't have a <laughs> iPad and I didn't have you know like we didn't even have a fucking radio that would work for more than a, a, a hundred miles or so. It's you know it's it's uh, life never stops, but it's hard to argue that 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 generation went through you know you started with horse and buggy and you ended going to the moon. Mm-hmm. Like the rate of technological and societal progress, arguably greater than any time in human history. Mm-hmm. That is yet, fascinating. Yet socially, most of the issues are still the same, right? You know, I it mean, it seems like I don't know because I find myself like at some point you're moving your goalpost on yourself. Like, my God, we've not sure. come. But on the other hand, when you look back, it's like, oh shit, we've gone ten football fields. The goalpost hasn't moved. We just left the stadium, and now we're in a new one. And mm-hmm. um, and it seems like everything, the fights are quicker and more savage, but they ultimately resolve quicker. Like, you know, look mm-hmm. at um, uh, civil rights, um, you know, for, look at, like, women's suffrage, and then look at civil rights, and then look at, you know, abortion rights, and then look at gay rights, and, and look at how the timetables that are compressed on, on achieving these goals uh, yep. And maybe that's just me as a as a, coming from my privileged situation looking at that. But mm-hmm. and then also you you know so we lose uh, it seems like we lose ground in areas too where you know people take things for granted and stop taking their eye off the ball and there's these rear guard actions to take you know to, to undo some of the the progress we've done. But I I don't know. It feels like that we make bigger deals out of smaller issues mm. of late, and I feel like that's the surest sign of progress oh, fair enough I, I i guess i'm not trying to argue that there hasn't been progress or that there isn't progress uh-huh. but the core the core things that people are 
desiring, right? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's talk. So let's, you know, I think one of the most illuminating things is immigration. Uh, okay. Because yeah, right. you, you want to talk literally battling. The, I mean, every single immigrant group, like the way they were talking about Chinese, Irish, um, Eastern European Jews, that is exactly the same way that people are currently talking about, um, you know, Mexicans and Central and South Americans coming across our border right now. Right. Like it's there is literally no change in the rhetoric and it's all the same fears about them not assimilating and about them getting in these, you know, uh, these cultural enclaves and they're dirty and they're filthy and they're uneducated. and They don't speak the language and they're taking the jobs away from the the people they're here. I mean, it's it's literally the same goddamn thing. Sure. But on the other hand, it's also uh, it's different because it's a different group of people that we're having this conversation about, I guess. So I guess that's the one thing that just really struck me is like, wow, we really, you know, it's, it seems like uh, anytime someone opens their mouth and says these arguments about the lack of assimilation, they don't speak their language, they're taking their culture, and they're taking their jobs. So like someone should step in like a like an NFL referee, throw a yellow flag, blow a whistle and be like, you need to watch the gangs of New York or <laughs> you need mm-hmm. to you need you need to watch the season two of the Nick and realize that the argument that you're espousing is a reactionary and fear-based argument that, that really has no basis in any kind of historical fact. Fair enough. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I would say that the corruption story is very similar to the immigration story, right? That's, yeah, I guess that's another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. so so that's almost like we're doing we're, – we're, we're making progress in some individual freedoms, but systemic problems – Right. Uh, and, and maybe it's not because I, I like to think about these things or I try to because it helps keep me sane as like a pendulum that we're mm-hmm. always swinging back between the forces of capitalism and socialism. We're always um, swinging between the, 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 the pendulum of conservatism, of conservatism and liberalism and that mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of like you need these balances because any any particular impulse that is all one way is harmful and destructive but like you know, it just kind of sucks that when you're living through a particularly severe pendulum swing in one direction, mm. and it it is yeah. I think you're right. I think um, you know we are kind of into the pendulum swing of almost a robber baron type of era in American culture right now, economically, and with the ensuing political and social corruption as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the 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 lack of and the perversion of justice, like you saw. I, I, we haven't really talked about Barrow. Uh, I think one of the chief pleasures of the show is watching him continue to sink lower personally, and and but yet his weaseling and his griming and his grubbing continually also get him into more and more trouble and 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 bigger and bigger failures. Yeah, well, I mean, Cleary. I mean, uh, I want to say Cleary, <laughs> not Cleary. Barrow is a is a weasel and a detestable human being. I mean, he's looking. It's weird because you know he's he came from a poor background, mm-hmm. right? And but rubs elbows all day with these very wealthy people and wants to be their equal. And the only way he's going to, in his mind, become their equal is through money. Mm-hmm. So he's looking to cut every corner, uh, literally and figuratively, to get more money. And he he wants the bigger and better thing. I, you know, to me, he's greed encapsulated right yeah i mean he he wants that from his from the person he's married to 
right? Mm-hmm. He he wants to trade up on everything. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, that chasing that will be his undoing. I I really detested Barrow. I oh, really sure. hated watching his story. I didn't get any pleasure from it. Um, no, not even when he's probably dying of skin cancer at the end. No, no. <laughs> as as about... as he steps on just wipes his ass with the concept of justice and fair play. I did love also that he signed everything over to. Oh, that's yeah. What you I mean, I don't feel like I need to see. I mean, she's going to completely fuck him and completely right. fuck him. <laughs> exactly. I mean, she was working him from day one. Oh yeah. Right? And so and and. I even feel that while she's playing stupid to sign these papers and whatever you want, honey, you know, inside she's going, yep, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to enjoy all of this, mm-hmm. you know, opulence and I'm no longer going to be with uh, what's the uh, the, the a- Asian guy. who? Yeah. What was his name? I can't remember his name, but I don't uh, either. But a very anyway, interesting she, character. She made it out of that, you know that brothel and is on her way to ascendance right yeah it's too bad it comes at the expense of barrow's children and his wife but on the other hand it's like i wonder i feel like that his wife will be fine Uh, i love the way she played him and and she because because i mean i'm thinking five years in the future when barrow's destitute and probably dying of some kind of awful cancer she's going to still be you know she's going to have the love of her children and probably community Mm -hmm. support and be doing she seems industrious and and willing to, to work hard and yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I would have liked to seen him completely fail, but on the other hand, I feel like the writing's on the wall, and you right. don't have to look very hard to see exactly how hard he's going to fail and fall. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an inevitability. Yeah. Right. It, to me, there's not much more to mine there in that storyline. So you know, like you said, other than just seeing him kicked when he's down, which mm-hmm. would be pleasurable to some degree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So do you so do you want to talk about the future of the Nick now? Sure, let's do it. What have you heard? Because I've heard statements where you know I've I've heard people say it was always Soderbergh's plan to kind of start this off with an, an, an a series of an anthology of two year story arcs, and mm-hmm. that the Nick has this long storied history. We know it didn't close until ninety four, two thousand four. Something around, I think it was in the nineties. But but you've got this over hundred year history, and you know a lot of history, medical history was achieved here. Like, is is that something that appeals that we could jump around twenty, thirty years and see how the institution has evolved, and how New York has evolved, and how society has evolved? Or do you think that there was something special about these characters in this timeline that we're going to lose in that, you know, jumping around through history? Or do you think that that is do you think that really was the long-term plan, or is that what Soderbergh's saying now that he's kind of like done with this, and Clive Owen's kind of done with this? Like, what, what's your analysis of this of, of the end game here? Well, so all we've read for sure is is that uh, Cinemax has officially ordered a outline for season three and a script for a premiere episode of season three. Right, that's the limit of their investment at the moment, mm-hmm. and all of the creators, the the Soderbergh's and the actors and all those people, they signed two-year contracts, right? Mm -hmm. So this was, from the get, uh, a two-year and done kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, Throughout the process, though, they've uh, the the show's had some success. I mean, uh, granted, the the numbers are, you know, 
only the Live Plus 3 numbers averaged right around a half a million for this second season, which aren't stellar. But, but that's Cinemax. But like, it's Cinemax. Yeah. And, and it's gained quite a bit of critical acclaim. And so it's, you know, I think for Cinemax's purposes, I think it's fi- fantastic. And it also looks good for HBO, you know, who's the parent company of Cinemax. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think there was a, it was a plan to just to do two seasons. Whether they had this long-term plan, I think, is a little bit of uh, uh, Soderbergh politicking Cinemax on behalf of the showrunners. I mean, that's the weird thing is Soderbergh isn't a showrunner, right? right? The creators are Jack Amiel and Michael Begler, but Soderbergh is a visionary, and he, I'm sure, deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the way this show developed and went. Of course, he and, has to. And so on. But he's also the people – he's also got you know the voice – if Jack Amiel or Michael Begler or anybody said exactly the same thing that he's saying, it wouldn't be the same thing. It, Soderbergh saying, I can see this as a vision, uh, and this is a way we could keep this show going, I think is all very doable and very feasible, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean... Who says whether- no? Who says no if they just want to come back with next year on the Nick? Like Clay- Clive Owen, fine, he's dead. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing it? No, no, I don't think they're doing that at all. I mean, but do you Soder- think it's because the talent wouldn't come back, or because they just don't have any interest in doing that? Who they don't have interest uh, the, in- the, the the Soderbergs, the 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 yeah. showrunners, the creative, uh, the the above the line creative types. Yeah, I don't think Soderbergh has any interest in being the writer, director, editor of this show anymore. Okay, uh, I I think. What he's doing out there is lobbying out there to say, hey, look, the Carrie Fukunagas uh, of the world, you could take this over and do, you know, two seasons. You could be the writer, director, put editor. Put your stamp on it. Yeah, and put your stamp on it and have your own killer score and all that stuff. Part of the problem is, is that this show is so much Soderbergh, right? I mean, he brought a lot of his creative team to be part of this and you know, there aren't too many people out there that can write, direct, and edit a show like this. Yeah. Right. And uh, so I, I do believe there's a bit of a, like, would you want to be the one following up Soderbergh to take this show on? I, I sure as hell wouldn't. You know? I wouldn't, I mean, but then I'm not a Fukunaga who yeah, might, you know, yeah. you, need, you need someone with the ambition and ego to be willing to do it. Yeah, but Fukunaga doesn't want to take over a show like this. Fukunaga wants to do he his wants own to have show. His own, yeah. Right. And so I look, I I don't know. I I think it really I think the the potential really rises and falls on the back of who's going to take over for sure. Soderbergh. Not could we do, you know, the Nick in the 40s or the Nick uh-huh. in the 60s or the Nick in the 20s, whatever it is downstream with a whole new cast and get some uh you know killer uh acting uh, you know actors to take over i think that's all very feasible right uh, yeah. and i think it could be interesting and whether you know it, especially if it's set in the nick and the time period changes i think there's a lot of potential to mine there what i what i think is the big question mark is who is the creative force there? Have you heard any rumors? Because you mentioned they've optioned an outline and a script. Who have yeah. they optioned that from? Uh, they would have optioned it from Amy Owen Begler, the writers. Okay. 
Not from Soderbergh. Okay, so there is no, like, you know, again, as far as the actors and the, the director and all that stuff, that stuff is all up in the air. Correct. So we'll have Correct. to see who gets attached to that before. Because I feel like the Cinemax is in this real transition phase now, right? Yep. Because this is the last season of Banshee. Strike Back's over. Uh, the Nick is is over. What do they have to hang their hat on past this year? And they've become in this kind of like, in a similar way that AMC is kind of mm-hmm. still ongoing, this transition where it's like, hey, we had the Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And we had this boutique thing going on. Now what? Uh, what is what what becomes a Cinemax if they don't find some replacements or ways to keep these shows going? Well, they do have a replacement for Banshee, right? The guys do they? Because the I don't. Yeah, it, it starts next month. It's a show called Quarry, and that's uh, some of the creative team of Banshee uh, are behind Quarry, okay. right? Greg Utanis, who's been sometimes showrunner and. Uh, on and off director for Banshee. Mm-hmm. He's show running this uh, Quarry show. It's two R's, Q-U-A-R-R-Y. That starts next month. So I I know that they've got stuff in the pipeline. But who knows if uh, it'll work, yeah. Yeah, who knows if it'll work. And that that's why I think it's got, I think that's why they went ahead and optioned a script and a season outline and said, okay, show us what you're thinking because I'm sure the Nick was much more successful than they had hoped it would be. Yeah, right? I did. The, I looked it up while we were looking. It's right in between the traffic of Banshee and Strike Back. Right. So but it's, it's, critically, it's, it's, quartered, it's blown away yeah, all yeah. their other Oh, shows. yeah. Critically, sure. Right. And so getting that kind of attention is as, mu- is as meaningful as... The you numbers, know, yeah. 450 million, 450,000 people, you know, on the Nielsen ratings. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm sure Cinemax got some subscribers because of this show. Sure. I mean, it had a pretty loyal following. And so, uh, I look, there's no way Soderbergh is going to continue to participate, I, I don't think. I mean, look, let's say they, they get these outline and script and they green light it. They they still would have to take the rest of this year to write it, and it wouldn't start filming until 2017. So we're mm-hmm. best looking at the fall of summer or fall of 2017 to see this show mm-hmm. uh, continue. And by then, you know, what does the the landscape look like? And you know, have people forgotten the Nick? Or maybe it gets on you know uh, a Hulu or a Amazon or a Netflix, mm-hmm. and you know, a whole bunch of people discover it, and the demand goes up. Right. Uh, I I'm not sure. I, I, I I bet if we sat down and thought about it, we could find people like you know maybe Craig Zobel, uh, you know he directed um, uh, the International Assassin episode of uh, the Leftovers oh, right, right. this year, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, he had a movie. I forget what the name of it was. It was a post-apocalyptic film with uh, Margot Robbie and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Did you see that? What no, that I don't compliance maybe. Think so. It was fantastic, but there, there, you know, young directors out there like that who I'm sure, you know, they could bring an editor with them and step in. You know, I don't know that they're replacing Soderbergh, but they're taking over the anthology, you know, and into a, a new direction and a unique vision. Um, but man, Soderbergh is so singular. He's he's got sure. such a specific style and you know brought with him a creative team but who knows i mean it could be cool it's it, you know tv does not have uh you know a hospital show right now that you know everybody's talking about mm-hmm. and 
uh, I think that there's always going to be a place for medical drama on TV. And so I, I think this is a – it's just a, a different pivot on – I mean this show is one part period drama, one part uh, you know medical drama, one part body horror. You know? mm-hmm. Sure. I said, uh, I said on Twitter during the season, I mean this is the best sci-fi on TV. Mm. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it goes to the 40s, if it's still that you know crazy and – you know, unusual in terms of the body horror aspect of it or, you know, but damn, it, it feels unreal, even though it's hyper real. Right. I mean, but that's the thing, like, you know, I think we pretend that this doesn't happen, but you know, you look at a quadruple bypass or open heart surgery or artificial heart, or even something like liposuction, it's hideous to watch performed on you. You're like, how in the fuck? Like I watched my son being born by cesarean and I was like, how is a human body who is conscious, by the way, surviving this abuse? <laughs> you know, it's 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 really it, it's miraculous. Um, I've had medicine uh, is miraculous. Thyroid surgery. Have you ever seen pictures of thyroid surgery? It's no, like, I have it, not. It's like a seven or eight inch incision across your neck. For sure. You got clamps going horizontally that, and yeah. clamps going vertically. Yeah. I mean, it looks, it's just laid open there. Like it looks medieval, man. Yeah. It's like something out of Hellraiser. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what would be the, the, the right time jump for this show. I, I've been trying to think that, too, because, like, I'm sure the hospital faced a lot of the similar pressures in the Depression era. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure World War II would have some interesting kind of like in the way the Spanish-American War is putting pressures on the supply of drugs. Like, that would be kind of an interesting era. And having your doctors ship off to war and what what do you do? You know, having the nurses maybe take a bigger role. I mean, speculating. I don't know that any of this stuff actually happened, but it makes sense. Um, I don't I don't know. Maybe go further back in time. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the right approach because, you know, Amiel, um, uh, Amiel and Begler had a uh, official podcast through Cinemax. It was really good. It was about 30, 45 minutes uh, per episode this season. And in it, they in the first episode, they talk about how when they said it was a period drama and kind of talked about the time period and described the show to people, people would say, oh, that's kind of like, you know, Gangs in New York. And they were like, no, that's that's about 40 or 50 years before this. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, so it's more like Downton Abbey. And they're like, no, that's, that's about like 20, 20 or 30 years, after, years yeah. after. Right. And I think one of the uniqueness, one of the unique aspects of this show was the time period it's set in. So if you move that, does it? Do you really get the benefit, or do you really get the uniqueness? Yeah. Because there's not a lot of time, there's not a lot of shows that are set in 1900. You I know, mean, that's that's the Penny Dreadful wheelhouse, isn't it? Aren't isn't that right? Yes. Like 19, isn't that like 1904? I thought Penny Dreadful was like 1890s, but maybe I you're right. No yeah. But it's much I'm, more. It's it's closer than any of the others we were just talking about. Right. Right. Which has to I make think, it also expensive as hell to shoot. Because anytime you do a period piece like that, it's like, you know, it's it's a whole, you know, it, it's anytime you go go moving in time periods, it's from a wardrobe right. perspective, from a set perspective, from just outdoor location perspective. It's got a, it's order of magnitude more difficult and expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the podcast did a fantastic job of interviewing all these people who specialized in locations or special effects or costumes or props and talk about what it took to to make uh, a particular location or scene 
feel like it was of that era. And it's really a combination of all those things, right? It's not just one, it's not just costumes. It's, you need special effects to paint out modern modernity, right? Right. <laughs> you know, and then you need to find the right location because you have to have a base to start with that feels like of that era. And some of it, frankly, still does exist. And then you need all the costumes and props to feel, I mean, just the research alone that goes into making a show like this, it must be expensive as hell. Yeah. Also, Rick, because there's uh, the Penny Arcade guys are trying to get a live action series made out of their Automa, um, which is kind of like a hard boiled turn of the century steampunk detective agency and featuring mm-hmm. a, a steampunk android and a you know a, a, a Sam Spade type character. And I guess one of the re- they're they're doing this on a budget, but they're somehow acquired this a lot of the set pieces and costuming from um uh boardwalk empire and the nick huh that they're going to be in a similar way that like um uh i I guess um joss whedon when he made firefly he acquisitioned almost all of the props from the movie uh starship troopers Hmm. and if you pay attention like all of the you know republic commandos or whatever all the purple bellies um they're all wearing the armor from starship troopers just painted a different color um and there's a lot like once you start knowing that so i'm like i'm kind of it's interesting to see how there's this kind of like kickstarter type cinema that is Hmm. going picking through the bones of some of these old shows and 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 trying to do period pieces more economically but i thought that was kind of interesting that's that's cool. I've, I hadn't uh, heard of those kinds of stories, but I'm sure that exists quite a bit. You yeah. know, as is like the Nick probably piggybacked off of Boardwalk Empire. You sure. Know? Yeah. Uh, but you know, I I I would think that probably like the 20s or 30s is probably the most logical next time jump uh, because you need a social time. I would think there's got to be enough change from the first season to this to this you know, you know the first anthology to the next anthology. Yeah. I think they're going to have to make a jump to like the 30s or the 50s, you know, some there's got to be a, a, enough social change and probably enough medical change mm-hmm. for it to be um different enough because I wouldn't want them to just go a few years or even 10 years if they're actually going to time jump. I think they need to move to an era that's enough different for a, a new signature to be not compared to the first signature. Yeah, that I was about to say that like it's going to help like if you move it far enough away that you're not going to have these obvious comparisons and you know it's it's going to be different enough to kind of dodge some of that and it can be kind of stand on its own own two feet. The, the, yep. And the 30s does feel that feels like if I you put a gun to my head I'd say that's the most logical jump. Yeah. I think that's about right. And you know, you don't want to go to the to the forties and get pulled into war stories. Sure. Right? You know, and I don't know that the twenties were really radically different enough. I, I you know, I'm I would say the thirties would probably be my best guess. Or like you said, go back in time, which would be that would be kind of nuts, but there's no surgery if you go back in time. <laughs> well, there is. It's just a lot more bl- bloody and screamy and less su- likely to succeed. <laughs> yeah, but they weren't uh, trying to solve medical problems in the way they were in, you know, in, in this era, right? They're starting to think differently about medicine. 
Really? Well, I mean, because it's like, I don't know, because like I've, I'm a big fan of the Patrick O'Brien Age of Sail that took place in the Napoleonic War era. And there's a character, mm-hmm. Stephen Maturin, that, you know, I think would I would argue that that was kind of the birth of modern medicine where it, you know, you move out of the occult. And like, yeah, I mean, the thing that held them back was not having a reliable form of anesthesia and like ether which mm-hmm. they kind of start decrying this episode to people the 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 season that people are maybe overusing it or um you know well, it needs they to be need safe or more reliable exactly safe or more reliable uh which is coming down the pike but um you know a lot of stuff like they were still trying to do the same things but they came you know kept on coming up with the limits of what the human body can bear unless mm-hmm. you can somehow knock it out and stabilize it and do all that. But there was a lot, you know, a lot of really crazy people were doing, you know, treating depressed skull fractures and they were doing and appendectomies and they were doing cesareans. And mm. it's just, you know, this, the, the survival outcomes are grimmer, but yeah, you're right. If you go too far back, you're going to start bumping into just everyone dies. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just everyone dies. They're, they're, pioneering in this era you know surgical techniques that are the backbone of of surgical techniques yes we've refined you know i mean i mean this the nick got electrical lights in season one and and, i mean that's like you don't usually have these quantum it's like you know uh a hundred years from now they might do a show set in the third 2030s where we develop fusion reliable fusion and what that how what that changes society it's not every day that something like the internet or you know power coming to a building has a potential to completely change the way you do things right yeah well you you know it uh i i would think maybe like the 20s and 30s is kind of the birth of modern neurology Hmm. you know i mean so maybe there's something there to that that's when they start pioneering like the removal of aneurysms and sure. things like that you know so maybe that's the that's the time period that they they need to explore that was with the golden I, age of like antibiotics and vaccination too like you know pol- right. like they develop uh um uh, what's the big one that's we're still using today that i'm allergic to penicillin penicillin and yeah. the vaccine for polio and all that stuff kind of is is and a small pot a lot of that stuff starts around in that area if i'm if i'm correct but i might not be yeah I'm uh, not this is turning into the bad history podcast <laughs> yeah. i don't, don't want that to happen uh okay. anything else we want to talk about no i mean you know soderbergh's i think his next project sounds kind of interesting and all these articles about you know season three of the nick and beyond they talk about Soderbergh's mystery project at HBO. It's called mm. Mosaic, mm. Uh, supposedly starring Sharon Stone and Gara Hedlund. Mm. The project is described as a highly interactive choose-your-own-adventure in which viewers have the option of seeing the story play out in different ways. What the fuck? Yeah. Like I mean, voting on it, Twitter? Or are you talking about... <laughs> I have no idea. that, that I saw this this uh, same description in multiple articles. And... So do you remember that the show that on sci-fi called Defiance? Yeah. That that was originally conceived as a show that was going to, during the off-season, everyone played a video game. Uh-huh. And how the success of the factions and the heroes and what in the video game was going to shape the ongoing story. And I don't think that ever panned out. No. Um, but that kind of... That is interesting. Like, on the one hand, you've got stupid shit like Captain Power 
uh, that you know from when I was a kid, where you, you just literally just shot spaceship guns at the TV screen and pretended, <laughs> and then you know, but it that that would be to do something like that on an episode by episode basis. I don't see how you do it. Well, you know, who knows exactly how they're conceiving of the interaction, you know, yeah. the the act of choosing your own adventure. I mean, maybe there's 150 story atoms. Let's just call them story atoms mm-hmm. in that you can walk down the path of certain ones. Maybe it's like a branching exercise. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a beginning that's common, but there's six branches that you can walk down or you can walk down the branches simultaneously or walk down them individually. I mean, there's a couple of different ways that I think it could be achieved, but it just depends on what they mean by highly interactive. Yeah. Right? It's a fascinating modern age we live in. I'm yeah, very I curious thought to it was see. Cool. It'd be interesting to see if you could do something like live television every week. If you could do like a big budget HBO show live you literally could write like episode by episode audience opinion could shape the storylines for good and ill. And that would be, that would be kind of interesting. Well, we're definitely in an era where I think we could, you know, that kind of experimentation and innovation could be supported. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's more money in TV now than there ever has been. Sure. There's more distribution methods. Things are less safe. People are taking more chances. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that Soderbergh is interested in experimenting in this way. Uh, what it actually means, uh, who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea, but the, the, the show for me, I have a hard time. You know, I'm a graphic designer by trade and, you know, kind of work and live in visual medium and – uh, this show looks – the visual grammar of this show, the way things are told visually is so different from everything else that's on television. And I get lost in it when I watch mm-hmm. it the first time, you know, and so I have to go through it's and kind watch of the, it. It goes through like when you're not in a meat and potatoes dialogue scene, it's almost dreamy. Yeah. Like the shot will just fade out of focus and blur into light and that's how they transition scenes and stuff and – you know, it's a very like so there are some things I thought at the end, especially the end of the episode transitions were almost like kaleidoscope type effects mm-hmm. um, that I thought was you're right. I mean, there's not a show that looks exactly like this. No, I, I mean, even it, really. on a normal scene, like there's this scene where Algae uh, Cornelia has arrived back in New York and I mm-hmm. think she's talking with her brother and it's a normal like two shot kind of look inside shot mm-hmm. where the camera's slowly zooming in on uh Cornelia and her brother kind of reacquainting themselves and Algie's standing right in between the two of them right and the camera slowly zooms in and you just think it's kind of closing in on this conversation but the whole time it's locked in on Algernon mm-hmm. and you kind of you're watching it as a normal two shot but as you get closer you don't watch Cornelia and Robert anymore. You're just locked in on Algernon. He's not saying anything. He's just reacting, and you can just feel his emotion sure. of this scene and what's being said and what's happening. And you don't see that on television hardly ever, mm-hmm. right? It's those kinds of – or like this. there was this one beautiful shot where Algernon is standing there after the eugenics trial, right? And Gallinger comes out. 
the the camera is looking at Algernon from an angle, and Algernon's rolling up his sleeves, prepping and waiting. Right, to ready to get right. Yep. And then it pans to this side shot where Gallinger walks into frame, and just the transition of these two shots. I've never seen anything like it on TV. I've kind of seen things similarly in movies, mm-hmm. but it's weird things like that. Uh, I say weird. It's weird because I'm not used to seeing that in television. You know, um, what about when he Soderbergh's uh, three minute take about them going to the uh, the ball, the benefit, the hospital benefit? Oh my where- god, yes! And the synth right. track is playing with these people right. waltzing around. Right. I mean, that was like a three minute. Uh, maybe it was like six minutes. I don't know how long this shot was, but it seemed like it went forever. Uh-huh. You're following different characters throughout this whole event. It was stunningly done. I mean, it's as is probably as complicated as that uh, Fukunaga directed, you know, episode of True Detective, right? Sure. With, you know, I mean, these kinds of things now are happening on a more frequent basis in television where you have this kind of innovation and beauty. Apparently Soderbergh is uh, is this crazy guy, you know, is wanting to get on the floor with the camera, wanting to get inside of things with the camera and do unusual things. And now that the cameras are small enough mm-hmm. and light-sensitive enough, they can do things that couldn't be done before. I mean, this whole thing is shot digitally. Uh, yeah, and that's the the lighting is so natural. Like, yep, you, you, it feels like everything is lit ambiently from the set. You yeah, know, you know it's also lit by a single candle. Wow, and like the way that like the difference between the outside and the way that the surgical theater looks, and the way that the corridors of the Nick looks, and like you said, right. the way that you know the, the shooting on the boat and inside the boat, it's. Oh, and inside the opium dim. I mean, everything feels not just visually different, but the 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 way the light, the lighting of each location is is different, and not like in a way that like it feels like it's consciously been lit. It just feels like you set a camera up there and captured this real location. Yeah, you know the way they did the non traditional for sure. Yeah, well, the the way they do there's a, several sequences throughout the season where they might follow a character all the way down the hall, up mm-hmm. the stairs, and into another office. You know, it's like, how in the hell are they doing this? You know all these offices are sets. Yeah. And what they ended up doing was actually buying a warehouse and building the Nick, the interior of the Nick Hospital inside of a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Like, they built multiple floors of the Nick in uh, the uh, you know, instead of just a single, like, this is Thackeray's office, this is the theater, this right. is this, they built all these things, all the hallways, and it, you know, I, I find the way things like that are produced is amazing, because, you know, when you're first watching, you're like, how in the fi- hell did they find this hospital where they could do these things? And it's like, well, they didn't. They just replicated it, you know, inside of a warehouse so they could... I th- I tell you what, what's going to really flip your noodle in the next decade, I think, is what drone technology is going to do to Hollywood and television productions. Because, oh, I mean, what they can do with these six axis stabilized drones, like Mm. it almost completely replaces the need for crane, booms, track, stuff Mm. that used to be expensive and time consuming and you had to lay it out. And then if you wanted to change it, you had to do it. You can just program a flight pattern into a drone and have it execute. 
And cool. I mean, like you, I, I, I listen to Adam Savage's show, um, podcast, uh, uh, still untitled a lot. And he talks about how the, what they've done in the last two years of Mythbusters and how much more cinematic that show did. And they had their season premiere, their final season premiere last weekend. And some of the stuff they were doing with their drones, getting aerial shots and these just stuff that, you know, used to, it's like, Oh, well they rented a helicopter. They got a boot and they're just doing it with this thousand dollar drone with a $3,000 black magic camera. And you know, if they blow it up, they don't give a shit. Like it's, (laughs) it's feels like that. I feel like that's that 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 we're going to really be awed by the spatial use of of cameras and the casual use and the namicism in the next decade because that stuff is just really maturing and and you know guys like Soderberg are going to grab hold of that and and do interesting things with it. Yeah, that'd be cool. I, I, you know, I was thinking while you're talking about it, I think Banshee has done some of some of that. You know, I mean, they, you remember I that thought episode? that I rem- yeah the one where they're crawling through the grass. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, unusual visual techniques that I think they're using, and a lot of times they had to build new cameras or build new mm-hmm. rigs for the cameras mm-hmm. in order to achieve some of the things that they were doing. But yeah. even just the simple – I say it's simple, but even the whole video game you know, POV, GoPro yeah, episode. They, they did, did the, on, the raid on the vault last year. Right, right. You know, those, those kinds of – I mean that's why I think Banshee is so exciting. Sure. Uh, of a show is they're telling things visually in a different way. Bottom line, this is a visual medium, you know, and they're doing it on a shoestring budget. I mean, I can't imagine Banshee's got, you know, a tremendous budget behind it. Well, that's what's so exciting. I mean, like the last 10 years, it's been like, oh, we can take a GoPro and strap it to a shovel. And now we got shovel cam or we can strap, it. you know, the idea that you can take a camera and put it anywhere in three dimensional space. Mm-hmm. And have it do any movement and have it be as simple as a guy wiggling two thumbs on a stick or as easy – or you can actually program points in a in a GPS and have it auto-execute the, the camera move. I think that's really a game changer. Like it's almost uh, yeah. this ma- ma- machinima kind of thing where it's like, you know, they're filming stuff inside Halo. And if I didn't like the way the camera looked, well, then I'll just drag the camera to some other place. So you can fucking do that in real life. And the technology is already there. It's just going to keep getting better. And I'm – I'm super excited to see what people do with it. Well, maybe that's maybe that's some of what Soderbergh's talking about in, in terms of his interactive mosaic, you know, show. Oh, that's true. If you could, like, you know, I mean, that, the, yeah, extrapolate that. So let's say you have a hundred drones and they're filming all over right. the place, and the right. audience can decide. There, it's almost like a, an NFL game where you can decide what camera angle you want to watch every single thing. Like, you that's could exactly. do that. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, <laughs> I feel like that's a pretty good The Nick podcast. Uh, sure. Shane, thanks for coming. It's a real pleasure to talk with you again. Um, tell the people where they can find you again. And again, this stuff will all be posted in the show notes as well. Uh, you can find me on the Film Schlubs podcast every week on Thursdays, talking TV with Brian Davids. He also does movie reviews on Sunday where he has a special guest and they knock down the world of movies. Uh, I'm on heisenbergchronicles.com talking about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and you can find me on Twitter at HyperGeneSB that's H-Y-P-E-R-G-E-N-E-S-B and I also lurk the Bald Move forums quite a bit. You do. (laughs) Rumor is you're a moderator around those parts. Maybe. I might be. (laughs) Well, thanks again for coming on talking to Nick with this. Um, Hopefully I'll find the excuse to to have you on again or maybe uh, 
you know, I do like to talk about movies and, and sometimes, uh, you know, Jim doesn't get, give me all the movie love I need. Maybe I need to come on your guys' show sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to have you. All right. Uh, take care and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks.